If I were to ask you to define the word trust, which of the following two terms might you include? That trust is based on emotion because it's something you feel about someone, or that trust is knowledge based on fact? In other words, do you trust someone because you have observed their behavior or because you feel something about them? When I ask this question to people in my audiences or classes, I often get a three-way tie. One-third votes that trust is emotion-based. One-third says it is fact-based, and the last group suggests that it is both. And that's the one I agree with. It's a hybrid. The problem is, whichever way you look at trust, its presence is becoming far less welcome in our day-to-day -day lives, and with good reason. Hello, and welcome to Cool Time Life. I'm Steve Prentice. Each of my Cool Time Life podcasts focuses on a topic dealing with people, productivity, technology, and life, and each offers ideas and facts you might need to know to thrive in today's busy world. An index of our podcasts is available at steveprentice.com under the podcast link. Trust. It's something that takes a long time to earn and only seconds to lose. As a thinking, feeling human being, I will feel trust for you after I have observed behaviors that support that feeling. It's a tangible collection of acts that together will build in me a willingness to believe that you will continue in this same manner. But there is also trust that is built into the system, something that is especially exploited by cyber criminals. It should be a well-known fact by now that a great deal of cybercrime uses humans as its weak point. Spam, for example, is based on people clicking on a link or downloading a document because the email purports to be from someone credible. There's a certain degree of trust here, often paired with some naivete or simply being too busy to think and to doubt. If the email said, this is an email from a criminal gang, click here to download malware into your system, the odds of it being successful drop to almost zero. But if it says it is urgent COVID-19 protocols for a return to work from your head office, it's a lot easier to fall into that trap. Similarly, when a person receives a text message on their phone, supposedly from the tax authorities announcing a refund or collecting on an outstanding account, it is easy for a lot of people, especially older people who grew up in the pre-internet era, to have no reason to doubt the message and to trust its validity by default. This is why robocalls still work so well. There is an implicit trust in the system paired with a desire to be polite that forces people to answer the phone regardless who is calling. Even the person who answers the robocall just to demand a stop to the calls is trusting that the people at the other end will honor that request. Spoiler alert, they won't. They will simply resell your number to other gangs for a higher price now that you have proven that it is a live line with a willing victim at the end. There are just too many stories of people who every day click on the link or even the unsubscribe link to resolve the problem that the message puts forward. They have a trust in the coding of the message itself and the people behind it. It is, of course, now time to pull this back. Trust belongs where it always has been, as a bond between two people who know each other well and who have been able to build that trust relationship over a period of time, and as a result of many interactions, each of which has helped build that trust, essentially brick by brick. But trust has no place in the connected and anonymous world of the Internet. To this end, there is a two-word mantra that I like to teach to everyone who will listen that hopefully will put an end to much of the cybercrime and victimization that comes from clicking too willingly and automatically on a link. The phrase is, gap it. Gap it simply means if you receive a message on any device that alerts you to a problem such as, your bank account is frozen, you have missed a delivery, 
you're in trouble with the tax authorities, your utilities are about to be cut off, or a message appearing to be from a grandchild who is in jail somewhere and needs bail money, or any other message that strikes fear into you, place a gap between that message and your subsequent actions. Do not click on the link on the message to try and resolve the problem, but instead go in via a different route, your regular route, your official route. For example, if the message is about a frozen bank account, then log into your bank account through your regular procedure on your regular computer. If the message seems to be from the government tax authority, then call them using their regular number. Whatever utility or authority is involved, if there is a genuine problem, they will be able to find it through your account number. The point here is to place a gap, an air gap, between this threatening letter or message and your reaction. Not everyone is aware that this threatening letter links back to a criminal organization staffed with people who are skilled in techniques of further persuasion. So teach people to gap it. If an email-based invoice appears in an employee's email, teach them to follow through by using the connections they already have on file elsewhere. Call the supplier company directly through the number you always use. This technique is a critical thinking technique, but can also be trained into people as a conditioned response. The intent here is to break the habit of unthinking reaction and replace it with the habit of inserting a gap between the fear stimulus and the fear response. So let's take this one step further and look at social engineering. Thieves, the organized ones anyway, are not stupid. They know that first-line cyber defense works, and they also know that employees, whether they work in an office or at home, are too busy to keep up to speed with online safety practices, so they abuse our natural desire to trust and the pressures that we all work under. Social engineering brings the confidence game online. We have all likely heard the term of a confidence trickster, someone who wheedles their way into your world by building confidence and trust in their victims. Ponzi schemes are the same, building trust amongst investors by fraudulently demonstrating great returns. These are cons, and they exist in great detail now through techniques like social engineering or business email compromise. Social engineering often involves a person who works to get to know someone on the inside of an organization. One of the most famous of these was the Twitter hack of 2020, in which the accounts of some very high-profile people, including Elon Musk and Barack Obama, were hacked and for a brief time started sending out ads for Bitcoin. This shocked the cyber world because Twitter, being one of the titans of this world, was expected to be impenetrable. But it turns out they were a victim of a social engineering hack, allegedly done by a single individual, not an organized crime gang, just someone who was able to make contact with an employee on the inside and through a series of conversations was able to get access to the network. That's all that it's about. Trust. Other criminals will go the bureaucratic route, setting up invoices that look like they are from actual suppliers that companies deal with. This is what business email compromise is pretty much about. Maybe it's FedEx or UPS or an HVAC company that takes care of the heating and air conditioning in the building. These, by the way, are the types of follow-on actions that result from a breach. When you, as a consumer, hear about a data breach at Home Depot, for example, you might just shrug your shoulders and maybe change your account password and then say, well, that's all good. It's over. But it's not all good, and it's not over. Because in addition to the millions of accounts that the cybercriminals get away with from breaching this huge chain, they can also get access to emails, transaction records, and other data that allows them access to names and purchase activity of another company that they wish to target. They can then craft invoices, collection letters, or other types of correspondence that have specific and correct names and purchase details included. These then get sent to a manager who must hurry to deal with them. 
And this is how corporate social engineering and business email compromise activities work. It's a confidence game that often gets a leg up from another breach that is already forgotten about, paired with the pressures of time. The rule in business and in personal life has to be trust no one. In IT and cybersecurity, this is actually called zero trust, and this is a practice of exactly that, trusting no one inside as well as outside. But it, too, must be carefully monitored to ensure that oversights and mistakes do not happen. For individuals, there has to be a zero trust policy even among friends and family members. This doesn't mean that you stop trusting them as individuals, but it does mean you definitely must stop trusting all communications as by default being genuinely from them. For example, if I was a friend or family member of yours, I could easily send you an email or text along the following lines. About that thing we talked about, here's a video that shows more about it. Or, don't worry about the money, all the details are here, with a link to something that turns out to be malware. In these two instances, because I am part of your life, it is quite possible that we recently did have a conversation which would make this type of message seem a perfect fit. Even though the topic of the message that I just pronounced is generic, your mind and memory will easily fill in the blanks and connect it back to an earlier real conversation. This is why when I talk to family members or friends, I will always make the subject line and or message body highly specific. With elder relatives who are more prone to be trusting and also to be less sophisticated with their technologies, I always address them using a nickname and tell them to never respond to a message from me that does not have that nickname in it. On a global scale, zero trust is the reason for blockchain. Most people have heard about blockchain in the context of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and the two often get bundled together as an inexplicable money thing. But the relationship between Bitcoin and blockchain can be illustrated quite easily. Bitcoin, the cryptocurrency, is to blockchain the same way your car is to gasoline or electricity. The source of the power that makes your car go is essentially a generic product, the electricity or the gasoline, and is used for a wide range of other applications as well as your car. The fact that your car uses this makes it just one of these many things that are users of that product. The same goes for your computer. If your computer uses Microsoft Windows or for a Mac, the Mac OS, or if you have a phone that works on iOS or Android, then your individual device is just one of millions that uses this operating system to function. You and I may do very different things on our devices, but we still use an operating system to make it work. So blockchain is a global system of sorts that processes transactions. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are simply one of many types of products that operate using the blockchain system. So if that's clear, all I want to add to that is the way that blockchain works is kind of like a jury. In a court case, you want to have all 12 people be unanimous in their decision. Otherwise, the case fails. 12 individual and impartial people all agreeing. Blockchain is like that too, but instead of 12 people, there are 100 or 1,000 computers, each of which must agree independently that a specific transaction took place with no dissent amongst any of them. Each of these computers registers the transaction in its own version of a general ledger. This is done to replace older versions of business transactions in which trust was central. For example, I can fax over a signed document to you and you must trust that the signature on the bottom of that document is really from me and that the document is not forged. The same goes for my signature and in a world full of contracts and digital paperwork and a global economy in which companies thousands of miles away from each other do business, there has to be a better way of authenticating transactions than a faxed signature. The blockchain appears to be it. 
Its purported neutral nature ensures what its designers call immutability and the fact that it is not owned by any one company, in fact your own computer could be essentially part of a blockchain, means that it should be impartial. The overall point here is that trust is a rare element that should only be used between people who have experienced each other's actions over time. It most certainly cannot be used for any type of messaging, especially digital messages on phones and in email, even if, and I cannot stress this strongly enough, even if they look like they are from someone you know. Every message that requires action must be gapped, approached from an independent angle as I have already described, like logging onto a supplier's website completely independent of the link in the email. And, to add to this, every login should also use independent authentication through 2FA. 2FA, or two-factor authentication, is about receiving a password to your phone in order to log in to a website. Some people find this to be an annoyance, but it serves as an independent factor of confirmation, since your phone is a unique device that is never far from you, and if it were lost, it would hopefully be locked. 2FA by phone is essential and should never be considered an option for later. Sure, the few seconds it takes to receive and then enter the passcode might seem like a mild annoyance, but I equate this to searching for or fumbling with your house keys. Really not a big deal overall. Experts will say, of course, that as soon as you can, you should switch from a phone to some other type of 2FA device, since, as you might expect, the bad guys are always trying to deflect 2FA messages across to themselves, which is another reason why you should never click on those spam message links. Access to your phone as a 2FA device is what they might be after. But in the short term, 2FA by phone is certainly better than no 2FA at all. Trust was never meant to be a global thing, nor a thing shared between strangers. It has become that way because convenience and speed have become primary motivators of our actions and consequently impediments to better judgment. It is better, overall, to enjoy the greater comfort of living in a trustless society and share the warmth of real trust only with the very few individuals in your life who truly deserve it. So, there you have it. That's my podcast on surviving in a trustless society. If you have a comment about this podcast or a question you would like answered in a future episode, please let me know. You can drop me a line through the contact form at steveprentice.com, where you can also find my links to Twitter and LinkedIn, and also information on my upcoming book coming out this year on fear in digital transformation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review, and please just tell one more person about this podcast. A full listing of past episodes is available at steveprentice.com under the podcast link. I try to keep the episodes evergreen so that the concepts do not get dated too quickly. So check out the index and download whatever feels good. Until next time, I'm Steve Prentice. Stay safe and thanks for listening.